Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Allison DeAngelis. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garden. It's Thursday, August 4th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. Democrats are closer than ever before to passing legislation that would let Medicare negotiate prescription drug prices. STAT DC correspondent Rachel Kors joins us to explain how we got here and what comes next. And we'll discuss the latest news in the life sciences, including some hotly anticipated data from Alnylam Pharmaceuticals, a $4 billion buyout deal, and other surprisingly good news for biotech. But first, a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Angus McCauley of STAT. Thanks for listening. It's an exciting time for biopharma. We're seeing real potential in new treatments, but they require big innovation. Linda Matiasson from Cytiva's nucleic acid therapeutics team is here to tell us more. Thanks, Angus. mRNA vaccines, cell-free, CAR-T, and more are changing or poised to change lives. At Cytiva, we are innovating production of small batch personalized medicines. They are creating new hope for treating cancers and other diseases. Visit Cytiva.com slash advanced therapeutics to learn how we are working with customers to bring their ideas to reality. That's C-Y-T-I-V-A.com forward slash advanced dash therapeutics. All right, so guys, we're going to start Chatty Cathy this week talking about Alnylam and, uh, and some positive clinical trial news. But first, we need to address the real issue, the thing that that Read Out Loud listeners want us to talk about, which is uh, John Maraginori's celebratory dinner. Damien, <laughs> what did you think of the tweet from John Maraginori on Wednesday night with the picture of his steaks and his wine? What, what, what's going on there? <laughs> I feel like the wrong person to be asked, but but for people who are probably aware, John Raganori, longtime CEO of Alnylam until fairly recently, um, very closely associated with that company, had tweeted earlier in the day when Alnylam had positive data, which we will describe, that he never doubted it for a second, and Alnylam just doesn't let a phase three fail. Hours later, did he post his celebratory meal, as you mentioned? And look, I, I have no... I, I, I've never cooked a steak in my life. I don't. I don't eat steak. Um, <laughs> I would say they look wet. Is that a positive attribute of uncooked meat? Uh, all but, right. So, Allison, you're a steak eater, right? You like you you like a, sit down to a good steak from time to time. I do. I do. I'm okay. Terrible at cooking steak, but I will enjoy a steak. For those who didn't see the tweet, John looks like he's about to grill uh, a filet mignon and two what look like New York strip steaks. Um, I would personally would have gone. Um, Probably gone in a different direction. I would have gone with a ribeye. Maybe if I was really celebrating, John, you would have gone with a tomahawk ribeye. But okay, maybe next time. But you know, because we, we go here, because it's because it's that we go the extra mile. I did reach out to our friend Ben Davies, who is the only person who knows wine, like the only person that I think of as a wine expert. I did ask him about the wine that um, that John was about to drink, and apparently, it's a pretty good French wine. So. There you go. My last point on this, I will say, initially I thought it was kind of bizarre to post a photo of your uncooked meat. Yeah, maybe he should have cooked it first. Yeah. Well, but I realized maybe he was playing 3D chess because former guest of this podcast and former FDA commissioner in that order on his resume, I assume, Scott Gottlieb is notoriously the police 
of meat preparedness oh. on the internet. So we're, let's say John likes his steak rare. Were he to post that, he would just be inviting the scrutiny mm. of a former FDA commissioner. Because so, we, yeah. we would have we would have gotten a tweet from Scott scolding John for for not cooking his meats to the proper temperature. So yeah, that that would have been a problem. Um, so let's get back to what actually uh, triggered <laughs> all of this steak and wine talk from John Ragnori, which was uh, a pretty impressive clinical trial win for Inilin for a which is a really important drug and a and a and a potentially blockbuster indication. Uh, Damien, you covered that story. Tell us about it. Yeah, it's it's there are a lot of angles to it, and I guess maybe the place to start is with the disease itself, which is a disease abbreviated ATTR, transthyretin amyloidosis, which I know doesn't add up acronymically, but then it gets more complicated because we're talking about that disease as it relates to cardiomyopathy. So basically, ATTR is a liver disease in which a genetic defect or, or something that kind of develops over time makes it to where a key protein is just made and is misfolding. And people with the disease, that, that protein will be exported to various points in the body, which causes problems. It can cause problems in the nerves, in the GI tract. So ATTR with cardiomyopathy, as it sounds like, is when those proteins go to the heart. And they build up, and these are amyloids, which we've talked about. It's a different form, but either way, they build up in the heart and they gradually impair its function such that without treatment... It can require a heart transplant. It can lead to heart failure. Patients are bedridden. I've talked to many of them that, you know, this is debilitating and without treatment, it usually results in death within about five years of diagnosis. So getting to, to alnylam, um, this was a trial in which their, their RNAi treatment for ATTR uh, was tested in patients who have this cardiomyopathy uh, effect of the disease. So going into it, it was a major test of alnylam's bedrock science in RNAi, where they already have uh, treatments approved. But also, because this cardiomyopathy form of ATTR was once thought to be very rare, but is now understood to affect 200 to 300,000 people around the world, largely because it was under or misdiagnosed. It presents as one of the more common causes of heart failure, and often by the time physicians would realize that it was this particular disease, it would be so late or, you know, when there were no treatments available, there wasn't that much of an incentive to diagnose it. So for Alnylam's science, this is the largest indication that they've ever pursued. And then naturally for their business, that means it's the largest market that they would ever have an opportunity to sell their drugs into. So that's all kind of the, the baseline going into this trial readout, of which there was a lot of skepticism that Alnylam could actually succeed. And so getting to the actual news, now that we've had seven minutes of preamble, they did. So the phase three trial, the, the primary endpoint was how far patients with this disease could walk over the course of six minutes compared with those on placebo, which is sometimes a noisy endpoint, but it is accepted among cardiologists as a good indicator of how well a given heart drug is actually improving or, or slowing the decline, I guess, of cardiac function. So it succeeded on that measure, and it succeeded on another measure of patient-reported quality of life. And those two things, by virtue of being primary and secondary endpoints, were enough to send Alnylam's stock price up something like 50% earlier this week and look like a pretty decisive victory in this very, very closely watched trial. Well, yeah, and this is huge for Alnylam's business. I mean, this is Patisseran, you know, in its its approved indication is, you know, it's not a blockbuster drug right now. Um, it's their first drug. It's kind of Alnylam's baby. But if they get approved for ATTR cardiomyopathy, I mean, this brings that drug sales to like around $5 billion, you know, according to the folks over at Cowan. And I remember years ago talking to analysts, you know, when 
El Nylum was starting to get the financial machine rolling about, you know, when are they actually going to turn a profit? They were doing a bunch of spend. Um, they had just hired a new CFO and everybody was saying it it hinged on this indication. This is when we really see Al Nylum kind of graduate to, you know, a financially sound biotech. So congrats to them. You know, let's see what the FDA says. Yeah. I mean, to your point, it sets in motion an FDA filing uh, on these data for that indication, but also Al Nylum, you know, looking ahead to that $5 billion number, which again comes from Wall Street and not them, although I'm sure they have their own internal projections. Patisiran, the, the drug we're talking about, is intravenous and it's administered every three weeks. They have a follow-on sort of next generation version of it that is subcutaneous, meaning you just inject it under the skin. And there's an ongoing study, I think it'll read out in early 2024, that's testing whether that subcutaneous version can actually uh, prevent heart attacks, strokes, the need for heart transplant, all of the bad things that come with ATTR cardiomyopathy. And if that is successful, then, you know, the company is allowed to kind of look forward into this huge, possibly huge and very lucrative franchise of treatments. And I think, you know, if John Merrigan were here, were here, he could describe, you know, the vision they laid out 10 years ago. But that's the point at which they achieve, I guess, like the exit velocity that biotech companies search for and become, you know, a next biogen type thing if everything goes well. And so it does feel like it all happened very fast. The first Batizaran approval was only 2018, but it's worth remembering that Alnylam got its start 20 years ago. And, you know, we're kind of fast forwarding through a few decades of a few crushing failures and disappointments and plunging stock prices and et cetera to get to this point. So, Adam, you want to talk about what's happening with Sarepta, another one of our biotech favorite topics. Um, they had some news on their Duchenne muscular dystrophy work this week. Yeah, Tell a us couple, about it. A couple of, couple of big things uh, with Sarepta this week. Well, I'm, probably the most important thing was they made an announcement this week saying that they intended to seek accelerated approval, so an early filing, for their uh, experimental gene therapy for Duchenne muscular dystrophy. There had been a lot of speculation about whether the company would you know, file for accelerated approval, meaning file early, or whether they would wait for the outcome of an ongoing phase three study for that gene therapy. Uh, and the company said that over the last few months, they've had multiple discussions with FDA and folks, officials there, which basically led them to have confidence and, and I guess sort of get sign off from regulators that uh, that an accelerated approval filing for the gene therapy would be considered. Hence, they are going to do that. Um, you know, that significantly sort of shortens the, the potential timeline before uh, that therapy gets approved. And it's a pretty big deal. I mean, there's some competition for gene therapy in Duchenne, mostly from Pfizer, which is running a phase three study. So, you know, it also, you know, gene therapy as a field has kind of had a rough patch over the last year or so. Um, and, this potentially sort of signals that the agency is becoming a little bit more flexible when it comes to gene therapies. I mean, we always think about gene therapy in, in uh, through the lens of durability. You know, how long will a, a potentially curative treatment last? Because um, that's obviously the that's the idea here is that it's a one and done uh, treatment. Um, and so, oftentimes, if clinical trials are short, you you can't really answer that durability question. But uh, Sarepta appears confident that. Uh, they can get their gene therapy approved and have it approved early. Talking about that that durability, you know, point. So let's say that they, you know, they submit this to the FDA 
the gene therapy gets approved, that would be potentially before Sarepta has even shown us, you know, the follow-on data from their original Duchenne product, right? I can't think of another biotech company in recent years that has benefited more from accelerated approval than Sarepta. Uh, and, I, and, and as folks know, you know, accelerated approval basically allows a drug to be marketed based on essentially what is preliminary data, right? And and before whether you you really know whether you can answer a question of whether a drug truly benefits patients. Um, you know, Sarepta has three drugs right now that are approved uh, to treat various forms of Duchenne muscular dystrophy, uh, three different genetic subtypes of the disease, um, all approved under accelerated approval and all for which uh, confirmatory studies are still underway and are not expected to read out until 2024. That's been um, just very, I would say, profitable, although they're, the company is not profitable, but but the, in terms of the sales that they've been able to generate from those three drugs, um, with the most recent second quarter uh, financial results that they reported this week, Sarepta has made $2 billion, that's with a B, in sales from those three drugs. And we don't actually really know if those drugs truly benefit Duchenne patients. I mean, we won't know that until the confirmatory studies read out. And like you said, Allison, then you, you make a good point. You know, if the gene therapy is, let's say, is filed early and gets approved sometime in the middle of next year, so let's call it, you know, the middle of 2023, um, that could reach the market um, and kind of replace the drugs that, that Sarepta uh, markets today without before us even knowing whether those drugs work. So it's, you know, it kind of shows you, you know, why uh, why the drug industry, why biotech companies love the accelerated approval pathway. Let's turn over to another company who got a drug on the market early through this one, through an EUA. Let's take a look at Moderna. Um, you know, and they reported earnings this week. Um, it was interesting. I They kind of got questions on two fronts that I found notable. I mean, one, we're, we're talking about COVID. Um, you started to see, you know, some of the waning of the COVID, you know, money-making machine. Um, you know, they, they write off, they wrote off expired vaccines. They had, you know, this, um, these expenses for manufacturing capacity that they didn't use. Um, and then on the other hand, they were getting asked a lot about monkeypox. You know, they had back in May said that they, you know, were looking at a, a monkeypox product. Um, you know, Moderna kind of following this this calling from the last couple of years of responding to whatever infectious disease is, is currently on the docket. Um, and they kind of gave you we didn't really get a firm answer from them about where that that program is. Um, you know, they were asked about it by a couple of analysts. And uh, I think Stephen Hogue, who is the president of Moderna, said that they would really need to get some clarity on kind of what the clinical endpoints are for a monkeypox trial um, to make a decision on like how they were going to move forward and what their monkeypox strategy would be like. It was a very interesting, I think, dual conversation there in Moderna's earnings calls. I mean, it continues this narrative of there being a separation between Moderna, the real company that develops stuff, and Moderna as it's perceived, like Moderna the stock, perhaps, or the way it's discussed in like Wall Street corridors. So there was a time when Moderna was trading for like $400 a share, 
Um, and even the most bullish of analysts could not find a model that could support that lest maybe they cure every disease uh, that has ever existed and perhaps a few that did not. And then they kind of came crashing back to earth as the actual dynamics of the vaccine market came into play such that this week when on their earnings, they actually beat Wall Street's estimates in terms of revenue for their vaccine because it had settled in, the narrative had settled in perhaps that in the endemic market, in, in, the, in the sort of tailing market for COVID vaccines, Pfizer would dominate. And Moderna's you know period of incredible profitability would decay quite quickly. That doesn't seem to be happening based on the results we saw this week and also uh, news last week or two weeks ago that the United States government made a pretty sizable order uh, of Moderna's vaccines ahead of the fall. So we kind of get into this weird space where, like I said, the, maybe we're, we're gradually coming together, the, the diverging narratives of what Moderna actually does versus the way people perceive it. But they have graduated also into that space where they're getting questions, constant questions from from analysts as to how they're going to spend all the money they're making, because I think there is, and this is, I think is accurate, there is kind of a chasm between, you know, the maturity of Moderna's vaccine, which may have already had its peak revenue, versus its most advanced pipeline products, which tend to be either vaccines or treatments in the earliest stages of development. So there's a reasonable question from Wall Street, which is like, how do you make those ends meet? How are you investing the profits today? Damien, we know what we know what they're buying. They're they're buying back their stock. <laughs> well, then there's that. <laughs> which is not which is not what a lot of people want to hear. People want to hear yeah. about Moderna making some big acquisition, which uh, which hasn't happened yet. No, but we did get another acquisition this week. Finally, some biotech M&A. Nice segue, Allison. I like that. Thank you. <laughs> so, Adam, you you wrote about the acquisition that we saw this week. Tell us about what Amgen bought. Yeah, this uh, this news dropped right before we started recording the podcast. Amgen spending uh, four billion dollars to buy a small drug maker called Chemocentrics. Uh, uh, the centerpiece of this acquisition is a pill. It's called Tavnios. It treats patients with uh, with a, a serious autoimmune disease that causes kind of inflammation and blockage in, in small blood vessels and leads to to organ and organ damage. Just, you know, this, this is a small deal. Uh, you know, what's interesting about Amgen is, you know, we, we talk a lot about M&A on this podcast and everyone talks a lot about M&A. And, you know, in recent years, uh, Amgen has kind of gone, kind of played small ball when it comes to M&A. And, and this is uh, another uh, another typical deal for them where they don't spend a ton of money acquiring uh, small drug makers. You know, this one is, again, for this this drug called Tavnios. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's not much more to say about it, I would say, except that, you know, this drug has a lot of potential, both in its approved indication that the drug was approved back in, um, in October of last year. It's also being developed uh, for some other inflammatory uh, diseases. And that sort of fits into one of Amgen's, you know, kind of product pipeline wheelhouses. Uh, so again, you know, everyone loves m and uh, even small m and And so here, uh, here we have another example. And, you know, again, it's on this, you know, if you're looking sort of very, very big picture, we've obviously talked uh, on this podcast a lot about the, the significant downturn in, in the biotech world. Uh, things are still starting to look like they are rebounding. We love to hear it. We love to see little little rays of, of light. Rays of sunshine. And now let's turn to drug pricing. Not exactly a ray of sunshine. You've heard the story before. 
A politician tweets angrily about farmer greed and high drug prices. Congress convenes hearings at which biopharma CEOs are shamed and asked to justify the high cost of their medicines. But when legislation aimed at curbing drug prices is actually introduced, the congressional sausage-making process, you know, seasoned with a healthy dose of big pharma lobbying dollars, renders it basically inert. Rinse and repeat. So that is what usually happens, which makes what's taking place in D.C. right now fairly extraordinary. Motivated and surprisingly unified Democrats are closer than ever to finally achieving a goal they've been pursuing for nearly two decades, allowing Medicare to negotiate prescription drug prices. The pharma industry, unsurprisingly, is going to war against the legislation, but its long win streak might finally come to an end. Joining us to break down all the happenings around drug pricing politics is stat reporter and D.C. denizen Rachel Kors. Rachel, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So, Rachel, tell us about this latest proposed legislation. What's in the bill and how does it try to lower drug prices? So there are like three and a half sort of main pillars of this legislation. Um, The first one is a redesign of Medicare's pharmacy drug benefit called Part D. That's kind of the jargony term, including an out-of-pocket cap for seniors at $2,000 a year, which doesn't exist right now. The second pillar is that it would cap how fast drug makers can um, raise their prices. It would kind of create a penalty if they raise the prices faster than inflation. The third main pillar and the most controversial element is um, the creation of a process to allow Medicare to directly negotiate with drug makers. It hasn't been allowed since the beginning of the program, you know, 20 in the past 20 years, but I think they're hoping to break that firewall uh, very soon. And the kind of question mark that's up in the air right now is whether this legislation will do anything to address the price or cost of insulin. So drug pricing reform has actually been one of the like few bipartisan issues over the last several years. I mean, it was the only thing that Democrats and Republicans pretty much agreed on during the Trump administration, but there really wasn't much tangible action. What's different this time around? And did the industry see this coming? I actually asked uh, Senator Ron Wyden, who runs the Senate Finance Committee now, what the difference was this time around when I talked to him um, at a stat event a couple of weeks back. And he said that Mitch McConnell isn't in charge of the Senate anymore. (laughs) And Democrats, you know, have trifecta control of Congress um, and the White House for the first time since the Affordable Care Act passed. So, I mean, the political dynamics are very different now than they have been in recent years. Um, And on the drug industry side, I do think this snuck up on them. I mean, I think they were just used to winning. They're used to Congress failing to do anything. But and it's certainly been an ugly process. I'll admit that getting consensus from Bernie Sanders to Joe Manchin, you know, within the Senate Democratic caucus has been a very painful process as someone who's had a front seat to it for the past you know, year and a half. But I think there is this realization on Wall Street that this might actually happen. And there's certainly been a ramp up on the advocacy side. And they're trying to do everything they can. But at this point, um, it's looking likely that something could get done. So speaking of the drug industry, there is, as you've reported, often a bit of a chasm between the rhetoric of pharma speaking publicly versus companies themselves speaking to the investors to whom they're beholden. So we are right in the middle of earnings season. How are the various CEOs describing the potential of this legislation? How is it landing with investors and analysts? So I think there has been a a better alignment 
on these recent earnings calls um, in terms of rhetoric about what this policy would mean for the industry than there usually has been. Not every company has gotten asked about this legislation on their earnings calls, but there have been several large companies, Pfizer, J&J, Bristol-Myers Squibb, that have admitted that this policy could be you know, very serious, could have impact on R&D. I mean, they're really not downplaying it to investors. They're you know, being pretty straightforward um, and kind of aligning with the rhetoric on the Hill when they're saying this could be really bad for us um, in the future, could be bad for innovation, incentives, all of that. Um, notably, Novartis did kind of downplay um, the effect on their portfolio. And it's just keep worth keeping in mind that different companies have different exposure with all of these different policies. So the results will look a little different for every company. So, you know, it may be a really serious issue for one drug manufacturer, but not as much for another. So we mentioned the the drug industry and their lobbyists that typically uh, are on the winning side of these battles, which just means to say that, you know, that any drug pricing legislation gets kind of knocked down. Um, but as we said, this this time seems to be different. And I wonder, Rachel, you know, as you sort of handicap this uh, this process, like, you know, what are the odds that, that this does happen this time that, you know, that the drug, the drug industry does end up on the losing side? Yeah, it's actually a really interesting dynamic right now, because at this point, it's kind of out of pharma lobbyist hands at this point. There are other reasons why this deal could fall apart. Senator Kirsten Cinema has problems with this legislation, but notably, there are problems with like tax provisions, not so much with the drug pricing provisions at all. Um, and obviously, if one senator gets COVID, um, that just throws off all of the numbers. So it's pharma lobbyists are kind of in this situation where they're kind of crossing their fingers and hoping this deal falls apart for other reasons. I mean, this drug pricing deal right now, um, obviously there could be changes as we move forward in the next hours and days. But as of right now, it's pretty it's pretty nailed down. So I think pharma's trying everything they can, but I think there's this resignation that there's just all these factors that they can't really control right now. So as as pharma kind of like resigns themselves to this idea that the government could quite potentially get the power to negotiate drug prices through Medicare, um, how is the outlook, you know, beyond the Biden presidency? Like what happens if we get a new presidential administration in power that is more, you know, amenable to the drug industry lobbying and to, you know, isn't really focused on drug prices and really doesn't have an interest in negotiating them. Senate Democrats actually tweaked the bill pretty recently to address this issue. So back in the fall, kind of when they were setting up this process, kind of uh, drawing the outline for this bill, they originally said that the government in the first year of negotiation could um, kind of bargain for up to 10 drugs, but now they changed it to just they're bargaining for 10 drugs. So they kind of eliminated that wiggle room to ensure that there's kind of a, a floor for what a future administration would have to negotiate for. There are also boundaries on kind of the maximum prices that can be negotiated in you know that process, depending on how long a drug has been on the market. So they do have some pretty... Um, bright line parameters for um, what this process could look like financially for the government too. 
But as as you mentioned, this um, the first kind of round of negotiated prices would go into effect in 2026. And it's very possible we have a different White House, a different administration in 2026. And as we well know, um, administrations often don't meet deadlines set by Congress. They could slow walk it. They can fiddle with the regulations before everything goes into effect. So I think there certainly is going to be an ongoing regulatory fight for the next four years will keep me busy for sure um, and everyone else watching this process. So the drug industry has long pointed to pharmacy benefits managers, the sort of middle people in in the supply chain between people who make the drugs and, and people who pay for them and take them as the real villains in the escalating cost of medicine. And that, that seemed to take hold a little bit among lawmakers as well in recent years and even months. Will this bill impact the PBMs that the drug industry hates so much, or are they kind of getting away from this one? I think they're kind of getting away from this one. And it depends kind of what ends up happening with insulin, how much that portion would affect them. But they've essentially gotten away scot-free here. And there was one kind of minor transparency provision that would have Um, addressed pharmacy benefit managers, but that got cut out because it didn't fit in with the rules of this special process they're using. But one point I think is important to keep in mind is that there is potential for future action on this. Um, Democrats are kind of laser focused right now on slaying kind of the white whale of pharma on this issue. But I think after they do that, there's a good possibility that PBM reform could be bipartisan uh, in the future when they don't necessarily have full control of everything. So it's definitely a fair criticism that this is pretty narrowly targeted at pharma, but that doesn't preclude action in the future. So Rachel, you mentioned uh, insulin. Uh, and, you know, obviously that's been a particularly hot button issue in recent years. You know, does this legislation include any provisions to lower insulin costs? Well, that's an excellent question that I've spent all week, you know, exchanging bill text <laughs> and trying to ask lawmakers about. Um, Chuck Schumer did say earlier this week, and he's the kind of led leader of the Senate Democratic Caucus, that they are trying to put in um, a policy that would cap monthly out-of-pocket costs for patients in Medicare and patients in the commercial market at $35 a month for insulin. So they're trying to do that, but... In my conversations over the past seven months, it's pretty obvious that that $35 a month cap for the commercial market may not pass muster with kind of the rules that they're that they have to abide to. So it's almost a, a sacrificial lamb at this point that they're saying they're trying to do it, but and just kind of making Republicans challenge it or vote against it. So I think it's a really complicated question. We don't have all the answers right now, but hopefully we should have an idea soon of exactly what the outline will look like. So what is soon? What's the timeline? Like, when are we going to get votes on this legislation and when will we know if it passes? Well, I'll tell you, I would like to know the answer to that question. There are a whole bunch of schedulers in Congress who would like to know the answer to that question. Um, And I think there are kind of little charts that leadership will email out with when the next vote times are, uh, just to everybody on the Hill to kind of allow allow us to plan. And in really chaotic times, they just put a bunch of question marks. And that's pretty much where we're at right now. Um, they were supposed to leave for, I guess the Senate was supposed to leave for their summer break um, and go back to their districts today, um, Thursday. But it looks like that's not going to happen. 
So it's anyone's guess kind of whether we're going to have this all-night vote marathon called a Voterama tonight or tomorrow or Saturday or next week or next month. It's really anyone's guess, but the drop-dead deadline for Democrats to pass this policy out of both the Senate and the House is September 30th. So that's kind of the date that we have in mind. Well, Rachel, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and what you think Yvonne Greenstreet, who is the CEO of Analem, had for her celebratory dinner. You can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. We'll see you next week.